Hey everyone, welcome back to Sapphire Stories. Today I'm sitting here with Ben. Ben, why don't you introduce yourself to our amazing audience today? Yeah, hey everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Seidel and I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Neighborly, uh, spelled N-E-Y-B-O-R-L-Y. Uh, and we are a commercial real estate startup um, that helps people use vacant storefronts, real estate in your neighborhood, ground floor uh, types of spaces that are usually vacant or underutilized. And we allow creators, entrepreneurs, and local residents to use these spaces short term. So whether it's for pop-ups or meeting space, event space, what have you, uh, our whole goal is to activate these vacant storefronts on your main streets in your neighborhoods. and make them useful to you all so uh that's what we do we've been at it for four years and uh, i'm happy to to talk about it today and answer any questions i really hope we can make it conversational i want to hear from you all kind of your thoughts about these types of spaces in your cities and in your neighborhoods and, and and really have a group discussion about you know what can be done to help bring these places back to life and and catalyze more small business activity and get people you know, into storefronts where they can make a difference for their business or, or for their uh, for their passion. So that's that's what we do at Neighborly, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you, Thomas, today. And, and uh, let's awesome. kick it off. Let's start off by hearing your humble beginnings before you were able to fundraise and what life was like. <laughs> yeah, definitely a humble beginning. So uh, I had never started a business before. Um, I worked at Naked Wines, the kind of online wine uh, distributor out of Napa, and was doing supply chain work, and and have always kind of been an entrepreneur and a creator. Uh, I started a nonprofit in Haiti, lived down there for three four years during the uh, during the earthquake, and so I've really always kind of had the itch to create something and to build. And I got into a bit of a rut at one point where I was taking corporate jobs and kind of doing you know, whatever was safe and easy to do that earned a paycheck. And eventually, you know, if you're really an entrepreneur and and a creative, it it just starts, you start getting that itch back, right? Where you want to do your own thing and you don't want to be stuck in the office and you got some idea in your head that you just really want to bring to life. And um, I think what's interesting about our journey specifically at Neighborly is I had an itch to do something about these vacant storefronts in my community in Berkeley uh, and I didn't know one thing about commercial real estate. I didn't have a background in that field. Uh, I had never leased a space in my life. So I didn't quite know what specifically we would end up creating or what solutions we would bring to the market for Neighborly. But I knew that this was a, a problem that I was very interested in. And I think a problem that could make a big difference uh, if, a, if a good solution was created. So I kind of had that 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 obsession over time of thinking about what could you do with these vacant storefronts they're incredible spaces there's so many brilliant people there's so many great uh, activities happening in our communities but you know you look around and you see all of these for lease signs in the windows and uh that's kind of where the 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 idea started and we my brother and i started the company he was the only person that i could convince to to do it with me for no pay. We both quit our jobs. He moved from Seattle and, you know, we started it with just a, a couple thousand bucks. And, uh, you know, from there we went down this rabbit hole of ideas, uh, which I think is, is pretty common 
uh, for entrepreneurs and creators is, you know, at the beginning, you have some general concept of something that you want to do, some direction that you want to go in. Uh, but at the very beginning stages, you know, you're iterating every week, every day, sometimes every hour with a different, a different concept, or you're getting market feedback and you realize that's a dead end and you got to go back to the beginning and try something new. And I think we had probably rifled through, I don't know, 50 to a hundred ideas of how we could help to activate vacant storefronts at the beginning. Um, and most of it failed. And I think over time, what was really interesting and the only reason I'm here today talking with you, Thomas, and, and, and everyone else listening in is we eventually failed enough times with ideas that didn't work that uh, consumers and people from the neighborhood started coming into our very first location and telling us what they wanted from Neighborly. So our very first iteration of the business when we leased our very first store was a shared retail concept, kind of like what Beta does for electronic stores where you can have kind of a small kiosk style engagement for your brand in a, in, a, in a flagship store. We saw Beta doing that and we thought that would be really cool if you could do something similar for Etsy sellers, for people who make homemade ceramics or oil paintings or furniture makers that are in the community who don't have their own storefronts. What if we could aggregate those uh, creators and artists and bring them together in one storefront and all of us could share this beautiful space. And that was, that was the initial idea that we launched with. We opened our store and it looked really cool, uh, but no one was buying stuff. Consumers didn't want to buy expensive furniture. We didn't, I didn't know the first thing about merchandising, running a retail shop. And it was, it was really, really hard. Uh, and I actually thought about kind of throwing in the towel pretty early on because it was clear it just wasn't going to work. But to, to cap off kind of the journey of getting started, what happened was that people from the community started walking into our store and saying, hey, I don't want to buy this $5,000 handcrafted, beautiful walnut table made by someone locally, but could I rent this place from you guys to do my teacher's meeting, my company's holiday party? Uh, can I do an art show in here? And so what was interesting is people started bringing their own ideas of kind of what they wanted Neighborly to be. And because we couldn't pay our rent, we weren't selling any stuff. We were losing money month after month after about four months. Someone came in and said that and we looked at it and said, well, how much can you offer <laughs> to, to rent our store? I guess what's, what's the worst that could happen? They were like, how about $400 for a five hour period? And we said, okay. And that kind of started us on this journey of thinking about Neighborly not as a space where we were driving the idea and the product and the solution, but more in the reverse, discovering what people wanted, listening to people's needs for the community, and then morphing our business to fit that. Uh, and so we really ended up building a company more based on other people's desires as opposed to ours. And that was an enlightening experience for me and my brother, uh, for being first-time founders, to kind of realize that, hey, maybe the ideas that we had were, were frankly garbage and they didn't work and they never were gonna work, but we were building something in the right direction. And as long as we were willing to, to kind of take the ego hit and admit that our ideas weren't great, but if we were able to be flexible and adaptable, we could build something that other people did really want and would pay money for. 
so we slowly but surely started adapting the business to become this kind of flexible space where entrepreneurs and artists and locals could use our space affordably and seamlessly for whatever they were doing. And it really took off. So, um, you know, we made one space after another and kind of grew the business that way. And that's, that was the roots of, of Neighborly as it is today. And, you know, the VC money and, and, and some of the growth didn't happen for, took two and a half years, uh, you know, to meet those types of people and get the business to a level where it could be invested in. And most of it was, you know, really, really hard work uh, and just running it on our own and taking small bank loans taking square loans, taking like, you know, any money that we could, we could perhaps get our hands on and investing that into our business, even though it was risky. But when you get started, it's really, really hard to, to convince an investor to put money into a company when you're a first time founder or when you're doing something that isn't really quote unquote investable. It's very hard to convince these people to, to, to give you some money. And so we realized that very quickly and said, the only way we're going to grow this business at the beginning is, hard work and paying attention to unit economics and being very frugal. And if we can do that for long enough, hopefully we can build a business that at least looks somewhat attractive to an investor. And so it took us a full two and a half years doing it that way, kind of bootstrapping. And uh, luckily enough, we were able to get it to a big enough scale when, when we could attract investment. So it was quite the, quite the ride from, from, you know, idea to, to investment um, stage, but uh but I think that's pretty common for a lot of people. I, I think it, the, the, the stories that you hear in, you know, TechCrunch or on Clubhouse or wherever about, you know, people coming up with some startup idea and then landing these $10 million, $20 million rounds. And it just seems like it comes out of nowhere. I think that's actually quite the anomaly. And I would say the majority of us are in this you know, whirlwind of a cycle of trying to figure out our business with very little money, bootstrapping, taking years and years and years of hard work to get to the point when your business is is, is ready for that investment. Um, and so I, I really hope that I can tell, you know, that honest story and, and, and the details of what it really took to get to this point. It's not glitz and glamour. It wasn't overnight. Um, and those stories that I read about all the time, when I think to myself, this sounds like overnight success, more likely than not, if you were to interview that founder, I'm sure you would find a similar story, which is took years and years of behind the scenes struggle and, and uh, you know, resiliency to get to a point where your business could, could take off like that. So um, yeah, happy to, happy to tell more about that or, or kind of jump into any other part of the story you'd like to hear, Thomas. Awesome. What advice do you have for first time founders who want to raise capital and, to add to that, why should they raise capital? And I guess, how do they build that network when they don't know anyone? That's one of the hardest. I was talking about that yesterday with uh, one of our teammates at Neighborly, just about the journey of going from basically zero, where you have very little social capital, a small network. Maybe you don't know anything about kind of the, the investment world or the VC world like I did to get to a point when you can get your business ready for that. Um, I guess my advice would be, so, so some quick background. When we started Neighborly, I didn't think of it as a startup, really. I didn't think of it as a, a VC backable business. We started Neighborly, my brother and I did, as a way to, to create a small business. I thought about it in that kind of 
very traditional sense that I wanted to create something that I owned that was local, that was going to have this impact uh, that was tangible, but I didn't, it's not like we had this enormous idea right off the bat to, to try and do what we're doing today. It was more localized and, and very uh, concise. And so as we started to have success, kind of storefront after storefront, at one point we were uh, at five locations, Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, and Portland, Oregon. Um, and we still had no VC money. We still had no investment. It was all just bank loans and investing the profits that we were making back into growing another and opening another location. Um, and so my, my advice would be really to think about if you don't have a investor network, like I didn't, if you don't have an experience in raising money, like I didn't, uh, you really got to just go back to first principles regarding your own idea and think about whether it's, uh, you know, a music startup or a fitness startup or what have you, a delivery startup, you got to think about how could I make a version of this business that is attainable for me today? How can I get started? Um, and what's, what's, what's a affordable first step to take that I can do without someone else having to give me permission to do that? And I think what's, what can get frustrating about the startup world is if you have an idea that's so big and you're like, I need $2 million and I need to get a seed round and I need to get these investors before I can you know, start to build this business of my dreams. A lot of times you, you might not even get to the starting point because it's, it's so hard to raise capital that if you wait for those investors to say yes to you, you might never actually start your business. So I guess my, my advice would be if, you want to have a big dream. You want to have an ambitious goal. That's kind of the only way to attract startup investment at the end of the day. But even though those are, that's true, you have to start with something more tangible at the very beginning um, to start proving that out, showing that there's actual market demand for your idea, even in a small version of itself, showing that the unit economics can be good, even in a small version of itself. Uh, proving to yourself that you even like doing the work. Uh, oftentimes when you get started with something, you realize that, hey, I don't actually like this. I thought it was going to be fun or I thought I cared about this. And now that I'm doing it day in, day out, it's it's not as joyous as I imagined it would be. So, you know, there's a lot of like, there's there's founder product fit, there's founder company fit, there's product market fit. There's all these these things that you need to kind of test in a really simple way in an affordable way first to make sure this is something you really care about and you want to, you want to make it big. Um, and then I think once you get some positive results at the beginning with those little tests, then you just start scaling it up little by little. Um, you know, you get some angel checks, put that angel money to use, grow your business. If you can do that, then you can attract the eyes of you know, pre-seed investors or pre-seed firms. And if you can get one of those checks, then you're going to get introduced to seed round investors or accelerators or incubators. And so you, you kind of got to think about it like a, like a ladder and realizing that there's no way to go from standing on the ground to the middle of a ladder. Uh, you really just have to go step by step sequentially and, and that's okay. Um, and if you believe that other people are doing it differently and other people are skipping steps, sometimes they do because they're experienced founders who have had exits before uh, founders who you know have maybe have some special knowledge or skill sets that other people don't have, 
like a PhD in, you know, nuclear physics and they're working on a nuclear uh, energy idea. Well, that, that's, that's a very select group of people in the world who could start that startup. And of course, those people may be able to take a faster route than the rest of us. But for the majority of, uh, I would say, entrepreneurs, the best thing I would advise is, is just to get started and continually try to make progress, but get started with something that you can achieve today that doesn't require permission from anybody else that needs just a little bit of money and then, and, and, and take it from there and keep going and prove it to yourself that you like doing it and prove it to other people that there's demand for it. And the rest of it will take care of itself as long as you keep, uh, you know, you keep staying with it and being resilient. What are some of your biggest um, failures? Uh, wow. Uh, that's a, that's a long list there. I would say one of the biggest failures that I'm most embarrassed about is when we raised our seed round in 2019, we raised from some pretty well-known investors in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, we had David Sachs from Kraft Ventures. We had SV Angel, uh, Topher Conway, uh, Jason Calacanis at launch. You know, we had some really great uh, firms and, and kind of well-known investors behind us. And I had never in my life been on that stage. I didn't even envision our company or myself as a founder being included in that kind of uh, sphere. And all of a sudden we were there kind of like very quickly. Um, and I had been so used to running the business with anywhere between five thousand dollars and fifteen thousand dollars in the bank account at any given moment like we never had we really never had more than that for two and a half years and even that's a lot of money like that at the time i thought that, that was a, uh, like a perfect amount and we were okay as long as we were growing the business and there was ten thousand bucks in the account i felt totally comfortable with that and actually very proud of that all of a sudden you know the spotlight comes and all of a sudden people want to invest money and uh, it, it seems so easy and these are amounts of money that to me seemed just completely insane. A million dollars of cash. I mean, that's not, that's, I've never in my life seen that amount of money in a bank account. So I got in, in a lot of ways uh, really shocked by that. And I think overwhelmed. And that's a, that's a, that's a situation that I, d I don't think is talked about enough. Um, it's a high class problem to have, of course, but like, when it happens to you, which it will happen to people on this call, and you don't imagine it happening to you until it is happening to you, you don't have a lot of time to sit back and think about how am I going to adjust my leadership style? How am I going to adjust uh, our company's spending habits? How do we even hire this many people? How do we grow the business to meet the demands and the expectations of investors who are putting this money in? There, there's so many expectations that get heaped on you all at once. Um, that what what we ended up failing at pretty miserably and that was mostly i would say my responsibility as ceo uh is spending that money in a way that was going to uh spur the right amount of growth and thinking about the fact that uh not only do we need to meet ex investors expectations of revenue growth but we also need to be we also need to be smart about the fact that this might be the last money we ever receive as a seed company. You know, I think it's only about 25% uh, of 
seed series startups get a series A. Um, and if you don't get a series A at a seed stage company, you kind of, it's over. You, the company either exits for a little bit of money or just folds altogether. And I, I, I think I made a big mistake forgetting that this was kind of the last money that would be available to us. And I had to use it very wisely and make sure that, you know, we held on to it as tightly as possible. I, I, I made the mistake of thinking that we need to deploy this capital really quickly, expand our locations, hire a lot of people, get an office, uh, buy a lot of furniture and inventory to make these spaces look amazing. And mind you, this was at the time that WeWork was trying to go IPO and uh, we were looked at as kind of like a mini WeWork competitor at the time, which is funny now because uh, both of our companies fell in hard times with the pandemic and everything else. But we spent the money really fast, way too fast. And that was uh, a failure on my part that had massive consequences. So we ran out of money faster than we needed to. Then the pandemic hit and we didn't have a lot of cash left to, to fall back on. And so, so that is one of the many, many failures that the company has been through. But I would say one of, one of the toughest ones because it impacts your whole team, right? We had to do layoffs. We had to close locations. We had to scale back a lot of the things we were doing and cancel projects. And that hurt because all of a sudden you feel like you're on this roller coaster that only goes up. But just like gravity, you, know, you, you, you forget that at some point that roller coaster is going to go downhill and it's going to be frightening. Uh, and I, you know, you, you can convince yourself very easily when things are going well, that you're just going to go up and up and up. And that rocket ship emoji is some kind of real thing. And you're on a rocket ship. Everything's great. It'll only just go up from here. And it's not the case. That's not the case, whether you're pre-seed, whether you're seed, whether you're series A, it doesn't matter if you're still early stage, you're very, very fragile and very vulnerable. And to ever forget that you're in that vulnerable state is to put your company in, in, in jeopardy and put your team in jeopardy. And so that's, I, I would say, one of the, the biggest failures that I made as a founder and CEO was not being more careful with our growth and our spending and thinking more kind of critically about how to deploy that capital in a smart way. Um, so hopefully, hopefully people can learn from that. If you guys get in those situations, y'all get in those situations, that's something to be very aware of because it's hard your, your investors will tell you they want to see these insane growth numbers and you you think to yourself the only way to do that is to invest more money advertise more what have you and you get caught in this spiral that is really hard to get out of so so hopefully uh, uh when that happens to y'all or when you have the opportunity to, to to deploy capital whether it's bank loans or or what have you, uh, you know, try and be as smart as you can with it because just remember that it could be the last money you have and treat it like that. And if you're frugal, I think those habits are good and, and, and those, are, those are habits that you can instill into your company for the long term and that pays off in, in a lot of ways. So getting our company back to frugality, getting us back to normalcy, realizing that we need to run the business uh, via unit economics, is, a, is just a, a critically important characteristic to build into your company. Love it. Now, two more questions before we wrap up our conversation and open it up. So if you're in the audience, just raise your hand, have your question in mind. But back to you, Ben, let's just talk about the highs. What are some of your biggest wins today that you feel great about? 
There we go. We can end it on a high note. Um, so yeah, so 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 those those were tough things about building the business. Of course, the highs are the, are the exact opposite of that. Um, it's those moments where everything seems to be clicking. You got the right team. People are enjoying using your service or or engaging with your product, and you're bringing something to this world that you know was stuck in your head for years, and you you thought maybe you would never be able to express that feeling of creation in, in every sense of the word is, is a pretty magical uh, state professionally when you get to, when you get to think of something um, and make it real. And then you get to watch real people finding utility from this service or this product and, and having it help their passions or their creations or their ideas, watching that, watching your thing help somebody else is, is in my opinion, one of the best parts of creating a startup because it's not just about you. It's really not. If you have a product or a service that is great for you or makes you some money, fantastic. But one of the best uh, aspects of building a business, I think, is the feeling of when your business actually helps other people do well or other people can build businesses or expand their passions on top of your idea. Then you're really adding to an ecosystem. You're adding to... Uh, to the economy. And, and that for me is one of the highest uh, points of the neighborly journey was seeing that not only did we create something that people needed and uh, seemingly were really enjoying, but that we were creating something that other people then could build businesses on top of and they were finding success. So there, we have a lot of stories recently. I'll tell, I'll tell one really quickly that has just made me so happy to, to watch and to be a part of. Uh, we started taking over um, vacant restaurant spaces actually as well. So we, we normally take over uh, vacant retail spaces, storefronts, um, but we've started to experiment with other types of commercial real estate spaces, one of those being restaurant spaces. Uh, and the restaurant industry went through a lot of troubles last year, of course, with the pandemic and restaurateurs who didn't have a digital side to their business or a delivery side to their business really really struggled to, to make ends meet. And uh, a lot of chains went out of business last year. So we actually got offered a California pizza kitchen restaurant with uh, Westfield, the big mall company uh, that's international. And they were like, hey, can you take this, this California pizza kitchen restaurant space over from us? And is there a way for you guys to find short-term users or pop-ups or entrepreneurs who would like to use this space? And it was a challenge because we had never done a restaurant space, but we took it on and tried to figure that out. Um, you know, and as, as we went, we realized that taking on these second generation turnkey restaurant spaces that were vacant could really be a great thing for young restaurateurs or people who wanted to try a new concept and give them a flexible space to, to test a new market, to test a new space to move their business from a food truck into a permanent location. Um, so we launched this flexible restaurant concept uh, at the end of last year. And we met these two restaurant tours in Berkeley who were running uh, a pretty well-known uh, Canadian poutine and smoked meats deli shop in Berkeley. And their lease was up and they didn't have another uh, restaurant space to move into their negotiations had fell through with these other landlords and their current lease was up. So they had to leave and they kind of had nowhere to go. 
And their business was growing and very well loved in the Berkeley area. So they heard about the fact that we had been trying this new concept and reached out to us. And we helped place them in a restaurant space that had been closed for two and a half years. The water main was even connect, disconnected from the building. Uh, you know, the place was basically condemned. Neighborly helped uh, get all of the utilities back up and running. We cleaned the space up. We got the space upgraded with a new fire alarm and fire system. We got it permitted with the city of Berkeley uh, and then worked with this uh, restaurateur. Uh, it's called Montreal Augies in Berkeley and worked with them to get their flexible restaurant open. And they're just on this really cool uh, performance-based rent system that we've created where they got to open up in our neighborly restaurant space uh, and they got they went from leaving their prior restaurant in December to opening up with us on January 13th uh, on flexible terms. So they're only paying a percentage of gross sales, about 7% of gross sales, and they're paying uh, per impression. So we actually record the amount of cars and pedestrian traffic that walks by, and then we record the amount of indoor uh, visitors and transactions that take place. So we kind of uh, modeled it after the way that Google Ads charges you. Um, so that, of course, Google gives you impressions and visitors and conversions. We think that it's possible to, to serve up the same type of system, but for real estate spaces. So we gave this performance-based real estate model to these entrepreneurs at Montreal Augies, and they opened up their restaurant with us flexibly, and they've been just uh, succeeding so well in, in this new location. They're up 30% in our neighborly flexible restaurant space compared to where they used to be. Uh, and they don't have a long-term lease. They didn't have to pay a security deposit. They don't have any kind of minimum. Uh, and if the space performs well for them and they make money, then we make money and we split that with the landlord. And so that's a really, uh, that's a really great service that I think we've been able to create for the market. And that's, that's a high because you get to watch a business and some entrepreneurs who have an awesome concept, but get to empower them to be in a better real estate situation, to make more money, to be very successful. And they're super grateful for having found our space. We're grateful for having partnered with them on this location. And the landlord is really happy because the space was empty for two and a half years. And now it's this vibrant, um, you know, kind of hip deli that's been very successful in bringing a lot of people to the property. So it's a win-win-win. And those types of scenarios, when they happen, uh, you know, that's kind of like the highest point you can, I think you can be at in a lot of ways when you, when you create something is watching other people find joy and passion and, and, and success from something that you, that you help bring to, bring to the market. Awesome. And to cap things off of our conversation, Give one final piece of advice for founders listening to our conversation right now and how people can reach out to you if they have questions. Um, wow. One final piece. I would say one of the, one of the most important things to remember when you're starting your business is that it's it's a, it's a, always going to be a much longer and windier road than you anticipate. Uh, we've now, I think we incorporated our business five years ago uh, this month. And I could have never imagined the amount of twists and turns and duration of this journey 
compared to what I thought it was going to be when we when we started. Um, and so resiliency and dedication and consistency are probably some of the more important traits I, I think that you can develop as an entrepreneur or as a founder. Um, so stick with it. I mean, there's, there's, there are times when you need to be realistic and look at your idea and say, hey, it's not working. It's not going to work because the unit economics uh, aren't great or there's something about the product that's not working. The, the, the decision point between looking at something and deciding of whether it's worth continuing on for and persisting with versus, hey, this is just, ne- this is a dead end. I need to turn back. That is one of the most difficult parts of the entrepreneurial journey is making that decision correctly. Uh, and it's not a decision that you just make once. You make that decision every day, every week, every, you know, every year. And some of the decision points are more serious than others. But deciphering between when to keep going and, per- and, and how much to persevere versus when to stop and turn around and go back or quit altogether is a, is a very difficult uh, decision-making practice that you really need to develop. Um, so I guess my advice would really be to, to, take, those, to take that analysis uh, really seriously and, and, and try and do as much self um, you know, in, introspection, self-awareness, looking at your business and being really honest with yourself and also your numbers and your and your and your feedback from your customers to to know how to appropriately decision make when you hit those forks in the road because that's in my opinion the only way that we've gotten as far as we have the only way this business is still even in existence five years later is because we have been pretty good at deciding when to when to close something and stop doing it and when to keep persevering because it gets it's going to get difficult no matter what but knowing the difference between difficult and impossible uh is is very nuanced and very and very hard but if you can do that right it really unlocks um so much possibility for your business or your concept because if you can keep persevering you're eventually going to win it might not be the idea you currently have today it might not be the product that you're currently building today but but if you go in a direction and you know how to decision make when things get tough, you'll eventually land somewhere that's really great. And uh, I would just, I think my word of advice would be to focus on that decision making as much as you can um, and, and get better at it as you go. Keep, keep looking back on the decisions that you made and, and do, some, uh, do some thinking about how you could have done that better and what was correct about that decision and what was wrong. And, and, get better with that stuff and, and you're going to end up in a great place. So I, I think that's, uh, that's what I would say. And if you guys want to uh, follow us uh, or learn more about what we do, I know I didn't get too, too much into the details of what neighborly is all about, but you can check us out uh, at neighborly.com N E Y B O R L Y.com or follow us on Instagram at neighborly. Um, there's a little bit of information there. We're coming out with a new website either tomorrow or over the weekend that will describe more about what we're doing um but yeah you can reach out to us on our website or you can follow us on instagram and dm us but uh love to hear from y'all i know you guys are all building awesome things and if we can help you in any way uh reach out and i'd love to be be of service awesome appreciate the conversation it was super great to hear your humble beginnings and if those who are listening 
uh, have enjoyed this, uh, you can listen to more episodes through Sapphire Stories. And if you ever have questions or anything like that, you are free to DM me at Box with Tom on Twitter or Instagram. 